Radio Mano Papachango. gentlemen welcome to another edition of tangentially speaking this is another one of these uh recently uh, born episodes called what makes this book great this is i guess the third piece of writing i'm talking about but the fourth episode because the second um story uh cat person was uh two-parter so anyway who cares right who, who cares uh but this is going to be different i'm going to depart from the short stories for a moment and read an essay um because as you know the reason i called it what makes this book great is that uh the things i'm going to be reading come in book form um, but I'm not I'm not reading an entire novel or, um, you know, it'll be excerpts from novels, from uh, nonfiction books, from poetry, uh, short stories and essays. The point is just to highlight good writing. And there is no good writing without good thinking. And what I love about essays is how they feel a really good essay in my experience um it's kind of like it's the most conversational um way of writing um but it requires uh, a great artifice but the artifice is to be so good at writing that it feels easy that it sounds easy. And I guess this is true of most art forms. Um, certainly music, right? Uh, it's kind of excruciating to watch someone perform music when, when they look like they're really worried about fucking up. What's great is when they're doing something amazing and they're just sort of grooving and it looks so easy, but you know that what they're doing is so fucking hard um, and took so much work. You know, there's that um, Eric Clapton song in a in a white room with dark curtains by the station. I, I don't know if it's true, but I remember hearing years ago that he basically locked himself in a room and just practiced guitar for a year, like self-quarantine, and that that's what that song was about. I have no idea if that's true. I haven't looked it up. Um, but there is a great deal of work behind anything that looks easy right we i think we'd like to have this the um, idea that people are just born with incredible talent and things come very easily to them and of course there are people like that we've all met them um but there are very few people like that and even those people have to work to shape their talent so anyway that's all a, a longish preamble into the essay I want to read to you today, it's called What You Can't Say. And um, I've 
referred to this essay many times on the podcast with various guests. I've recommended it. So some of you may have already uh, looked it up and read it. It's by a guy named Paul Graham. It's available online. It's on his uh, website. He's got a collection of essays there. And to be honest, I don't even really know who Paul Graham is. I, I think I read a little bio, like he's a Silicon Valley guy. I think he was an early investor. He's probably um, maybe in his 40s, um, because when he wrote this essay uh, 2004, 16 years ago, uh, he mentioned something about maybe having kids one day. And I follow him on Twitter, and he talks about his eight-year-old. Um, so he's had a kid in the meantime. And, um, you know, I I imagine he's a guy who was in Silicon Valley early, probably an engineer or some sort of technical guy. And he's just very, very smart. And uh, he's a very good writer and a very clear thinker. So... I think this essay is very useful because, of course, it's an example of good writing and very good, very solid thinking. Um, but it's also it's more than that. It's it's a tool, you know, most. How can I say this? Like when I was writing Civilized to Death um, and Sex at Dawn, I found that that there were decisions I needed to make um, because publishers want you to tell people how to be happy. They like prescriptive books because there's a market for that. Uh, it's not their fault. It's that people want to be told how to live. They want to be told what to do, where to go, what, you know, people want um, answers, but giving people answers isn't particularly helpful. It's much better if you can help people learn how to ask better questions and then let them go off in search of their own answers. Um, you know, there's that sort of classic, uh, teach a man to fish story we've all heard. A million times. I guess that's basically what I'm saying. Um, but I love essays that don't just say, hey, look, here's the problem. Here's the answer. But that say, here's a problem and here's a tool. Here's a, a cognitive tool so that you can think about this problem in a clearer, more effective way. Uh, and I think that's what that is, this essay does. So it's called What You Can't Say. It's by Paul Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M. Um, and here we go. Have you ever seen an old photo of yourself and been embarrassed at the way you looked? Did we actually dress like that? We did. And we had no idea how silly we looked. It's the nature of fashion to be invisible. In the same way, the movement of the earth is invisible to all of us riding on it. This is Chris. That's the first paragraph. Now, 
Look at what he's done in the first paragraph, just a few sentences. He starts off very approachable very, you know, with a question that, oh, yeah, of course, I've seen an old photograph and been embarrassed at the way I look. So he brings you in. He pulls you in. He gets you to say yes in the first sentence, right? Yes, I have had that experience. Now I'm with you, right? And then did we actually dress like that? So now he includes himself. Yes, we did. So now he, you're, you're in a community with this guy already, right? And we had no idea how silly we look. So already you're feeling like, oh, yeah, we're in this together. I know what you mean. And then he takes the nature of fashion and he compares it to the movement of the earth. So now he's showing you that here's this thing that's universal. It scales up, it scales down. It can be as silly as your tie-dye shirt or it can be as profound and and universal as the movement of the planet that we're all on. Okay? So I I feel in that first paragraph like I like this guy, I'm impressed. He does this thing at the end there where he's he's sort of established this principle and then he shows like boom, this is a huge principle, right? So now he's going to keep expanding it. All right. So let's go to the next paragraph. What scares me is that there are moral fashions too. They're just as arbitrary and just as invisible to most people, but they're much more dangerous. Fashion is mistaken for good design. Moral fashion is mistaken for good. That's such a great sentence, right? So now he's taking you from the fashion and showing you, wait a minute, this also, this doesn't just apply to clothing. This applies to the way we think and the way we judge other people. So let's go back. Fashion is mistaken for good design. Moral fashion is mistaken for good. Dressing oddly gets you laughed at. Violating moral fashions can get you fired, ostracized, imprisoned, or even killed. Okay, so this isn't funny anymore. Now he's showing how serious this issue is. So it scales out that way as well. It's horizontal and vertical. This is a serious business. If you could travel back in a time machine, one thing would be true no matter where you went. You'd have to watch what you said. Opinions we consider harmless could have gotten you in big trouble. I've already said at least one thing that would have gotten me in big trouble in most of Europe in the 17th century and did get Galileo in big trouble when he said it that the earth moves. It seems to be a constant throughout history. In every period, people believe things that were just ridiculous and believe them so strongly that you would have gotten in terrible trouble for saying otherwise. Is our time any different? To anyone who has read any amount of history, the answer is almost certainly no. It would be a remarkable coincidence if ours were the first era to get everything just right. It's tantalizing to think we believe things that people in the future will find ridiculous. What would someone coming back to visit us in a time machine have to be careful not to say? That's what I want to study here. But I want to do more than just shock everyone with the heresy du jour. I want to find general recipes for discovering what you can't say in any era. Okay, 
that's so beautiful. So that's the, the end of the first little introductory section of the essay. So basically he's shown that every era has these things they believe that later people look back on and say, this is, that was crazy. Why did they think that? Um, so what are some examples? 20th century homosexuality was considered a um, mental disease. Uh, in the early 20th century, it was considered um, obvious that um, women weren't intelligence, intelligent enough to be given the right to vote. They'll just mess everything up. Um, masturbation was considered so evil and so horrible that um, if you've read Sex at Dawn, you know that uh, doctors recommended sewing little boys' foreskins closed so that they couldn't get erections. Um, doctors put acid, carbolic acid, on little girls' clitorises if they touch themselves inappropriately. Um, these things were considered normal and right and absolutely unquestioned. Um, Go back a little bit further, and the idea that one race of people could own people from another race was considered obvious and normal to a lot of people. Um, you know, we laugh at, or don't laugh, but we're shocked at the Nazis thinking that they have, you know, a superior race and all the Hitler nonsense. Um, but people believe that very, very strongly, enough to, to die, enough to go to war. That wasn't very long ago. Um, so there's no question that this principle that he's outlined here is real. So, and, and as he says, I don't want to just shock you. I want to find general recipes for finding what you can't say in any era. Um, and I like how he shows that it's the way you figure out what's ridiculous is it's precisely the thing you can't talk about. It's the thing that you would offend everyone if you said it. And that's really important here. Okay. This next section is called the conformist test. Let's start with a test. Do you have any opinions that you would be reluctant to express in front of a group of your peers? If the answer is no, you might want to stop and think about that. If everything you believe is something you're supposed to believe, could that possibly be a coincidence? Odds are it isn't. Odds are you just think what you're told. The other alternative would be that you independently considered every question and came up with the exact same answers that are now considered acceptable. That seems unlikely because you'd also have to make the same mistakes. Matt make... <clears throat> Sorry, map makers deliberately put slight mistakes in their maps so they can tell when someone copies them. If another map has the same mistake, that's very convincing evidence. Like every other era in history, our moral map almost certainly contains a few mistakes. And anyone who makes the same mistakes probably didn't do it by accident. It would be like someone claiming they had independently decided in 1972 that bell-bottom jeans were a good idea. <clears throat> if you believe everything you're supposed to now, 
How can you be sure you wouldn't also have believed everything you were supposed to if you had grown up among the plantation owners of the pre-Civil War South, or in Germany in the 1930s, or, the, or among the Mongols in 1200, for that matter? Odds are you would have. Back in the era of terms like well-adjusted, the idea seemed to be that there was something wrong with you if you thought things you didn't dare say out loud. This seems backward. Almost certainly, there is something wrong with you if you don't think things you don't dare say out loud. Okay, two points here. First of all, in the previous paragraph where he says, if you believe everything you're supposed to, how can you be sure you wouldn't have believed everything? This is something that strikes me a lot um, and has sort of been a burr under my saddle in terms of I've never been able to be comfortable in groups of people who believe the same things. Um, and, and this is helping me understand why, like, like maybe Burning Man is an example for me. It makes me really uncomfortable to be in groups of people who are bonded by some kind of idea or perspective on life. Um, Maybe I'm just an oddball. Maybe it's just the way I grew up moving all the time and stuff. But I get really uncomfortable in those situations. And I think one of the reasons is that I feel like most in any group like that, a lot of the people in the group are just there because they want to be in a group. They aren't really thinking about it. They aren't they haven't arrived at this at these ideas and at, at this event or through a long and winding road of self-examination and questioning the premises and thinking things through. Most of the people in any group have arrived there by a very direct route, which is that their friends are there, so they're there. Uh, or I had a girlfriend once who said, we were living in San Francisco and she was younger than me. And, um, one day she said, you know, I, I want to be a hippie. And I said, what do you mean? And she was from Spain. So there was some cultural stuff there too. But I said, what do you mean? She, she said, yeah, I, I want to be a hippie. I said, so you want to like smoke weed and go like make a garden? And she said, no, no, I just, I just want to, I want to look like, I want to buy the clothes. So her idea, she said she wanted to be a hippie, but what she meant was that she wanted to adopt the fashion of the hippies, that she wanted like a fringe deerskin jacket or something and tie dye. And I think that's where a lot of people are in these issues. So his examples there make perfect sense to me when I see someone who's like, I am a fucking hippie. They're so, they've got the dreadlocks and they got the tats and they got the clothes and they, you know, the dirty backpack or whatever. Like when I see people who are like really look like the thing that they want you to think they are, who've obviously put a lot of 
effort into that. Um, they scare me. Because even if in this particular manifestation, they're identifying as something that's relatively harmless, like a hippie, or all these dudes who everywhere in America, there are dudes who look just like Joe Rogan, right? They're, they've pumped up and they've got the tats and the sleeves and their shaved heads. And they're, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm like, uh, uh, I'm Joe Rogan. I'm like little Joe, Joe Jr. They're. I mean, that Joe Rogan's a great guy to emulate, but it's the emulating of someone else. It's the the assuming of an identity that scares me. Because these are not people who have done the sorts of thinking that Graham is talking about. These are people who, you know, in 1972, like, hey, bell bottoms are cool. And in 1930 in Germany, hey, Jews are deserve to be exterminated. It's, it's the same kind of thinking. Um, it's unexamined thinking. And so he says, the idea seemed to be that there was something wrong with you if you thought things you didn't dare say out loud. So if you have things in your head that you're not saying out loud, they used generally they'll say something's wrong with you, right? You've got these secrets. But what Graham is saying is, no, no, there's something wrong with you if you don't have these secrets. If you don't look around occasionally and say, this is bullshit. That's when there's something wrong with you. If you don't look at stuff and say, what? Why are people doing this? Why is this the thing now? Especially as you get older and you've lived long enough to see these things come and go. If you are totally in alignment with what's going on, Graham is saying, you're not thinking clearly. Okay, back to the essay. Next section is called Trouble. <laughs> what can't we say? One way to find these ideas is simply to look at things people do say and get in trouble for. Of course, we're not just looking for things we can't say. We're looking for things we can't say that are true, or at least have enough chance of being true that the question should remain open. But many of the things people get in trouble for saying probably do make it over this second lower threshold. No one gets in trouble for saying that two plus two is five or that people in Pittsburgh are 10 feet tall. Such obviously false statements might be treated as jokes or at worst as evidence of insanity, but they're not likely to make anyone mad. The statements that make people mad are the ones they worry might be believed. I suspect the statements that make people maddest are those they worry might be true. If Galileo had said that people in Padua were 10 feet tall, he would have been regarded as a harmless eccentric. But saying the earth orbited the sun was another matter. The church knew this would set people thinking. Certainly, as we look back on the past, this rule of thumb works well. A lot of the statements people got in trouble for seem harmless now. So it's likely that visitors from the future would agree with at least some of the statements that get people in trouble today. Do we have no Galileos? Not likely. To find them, keep track of opinions that get people in trouble. 
and then start asking, but could this be true? Okay, it may be heretical or whatever modern equivalent, but might it also be true? So think about, this is Chris again, think about that. Think about things that people are saying in, right now that are, that's getting them in trouble that might be true. I can think of a bunch of examples. All right, heresy. This won't get us all the answers though. What if no one happens to have gotten in trouble for a particular idea yet? What if some idea would be so radioactively controversial that no one would dare express it in public? How can we find these too? Another approach is to follow that word, heresy. In every period of history, there seems to have been labels that got applied to statements to shoot them down before anyone had a chance to ask if they were true or not. Quote, blasphemy, sacrilege, and heresy were such labels for a good part of Western history. And in more recent times, words like indecent, improper, and un-American have been. By now, these labels have lost their sting. They always do. By now, they're mostly used ironically, but in their time, they had real force. The word defeatist, for example, has no particular political connotations now. But in Germany in 1917, it was a weapon used by Ludendorff in a purge of those who favored a negotiated peace. At the start of World War II, it was used extensively by Churchill and his supporters to silence their opponents. In 1940, any argument against Churchill's aggressive policy was, quote, defeatist, unquote. Was it right or wrong? Ideally, no one got far enough to even ask that question. We have such labels today, of course, quite a lot of them, from the all-purpose inappropriate to the dreaded divisive. In any period, it should be easy to figure out what such labels are simply by looking at what people call ideas they disagree with, besides untrue. When a politician say, says his opponent is mistaken, that's a straightforward criticism. But when he attacks a statement as divisive or racially insensitive, instead of arguing that it's false, we should start paying attention. So another way to figure out which of our taboos future generations will laugh at is to start with the labels. Take a label, sexist, for example, and try to think of some ideas that would be called that. Then, for each, ask, might this be true? Just start listing ideas at random? Yes, because they won't really be random. The ideas that come to mind first will be the most plausible ones. They'll be things you've already noticed but didn't let yourself think. In 1989, some clever researchers tracked the eye movements of radiologists as they scanned chest images for signs of lung cancer. They found that even when the radiologist missed a cancerous lesion, their eyes had usually paused at the sight of it. Part of their brain knew there was something there. It just didn't percolate all the way up into conscious knowledge. I think many interesting heretical thoughts are already formed in our minds. If we just turn off our self-censorship temporarily, those will be the first to emerge.
Okay, end of section. Really important there. So the idea being, there are things that you can't say. There are things you're even afraid to think. And there may be nuggets of truth in those things. Um, you know, we live in a time, for example, where at least in universities, we're being told that uh, there are no differences between men and women, no differences between the way men's brains work and women's brains work. But don't we all know that there are? I think one of the big problems with trying to talk about things publicly um, at this period in American history is that we've lost the understanding that things can be different without being um, unequal. Equal doesn't mean same in terms of social issues. It does in mathematics, I guess. But in other words, it's, you know, it's very difficult to say there could be um, innate differences in mathematical ability between um, men's brains and women's brains without being ridiculed or to say that there are, you know, differences in the way um, different races think or move or experience life without it then being assumed that you're being racist, that you're saying that one race is better than the other or one sex is better than the other. When that's not necessarily what you're saying, you're just saying there's a difference. It's no different than saying, um, you know, cats and dogs are different. It doesn't mean cats are better or dogs are better, but they're different. And cats are much better at climbing trees. That doesn't mean cats are better. Um, so if there are innate cognitive differences between the way, um, you know, men and women look at mathematics or color perception or um, between, you know, straight men and gay men in the way that they process information in their brains, that's not saying there's anything wrong with anyone. It's just saying that there are interesting differences. And in some specific cases, Yes, women do seem to be better at being therapists, for example. They're better at picking up um, subtle, nonverbal cues to how someone's feeling. That appears to be innate. Um, but to suggest that could get you in trouble in some ways. Not that so much, because it's okay to say women are better. It's just bad to say men are better at things. Anyway, okay, back to the essay. This next section is called Time and Space. <clears throat> If we could look into the future, it would be obvious which of our taboos they'd laugh at. We can't do that, but we can do something almost as good. We can look into the past. Another way to figure out what we're getting wrong is to look at what used to be acceptable and is now unthinkable. Changes between the past and the present sometimes do represent progress. In a field like physics, if we disagree with past generations, it's because we're right and they're wrong. 
But this becomes rapidly less true as you move away from the certainty of the hard sciences. By the time you get to social questions, many changes are just fashion. The age of consent fluctuates like hemlines. We may imagine that we are a great deal smarter and more virtuous than past generations. But the more history you read, the less likely this seems. People in past times were much like us, not heroes, not barbarians. Whatever their ideas were, they were ideas reasonable people could believe. This is so important, such an important point that so many people misunderstand. People in the past weren't stupid. Even hunter-gatherers were not stupid compared to us. It's often said and written by otherwise respectable, intelligent people that hunter-gatherers were like um, our ancestors were a inferior version of us, that they couldn't think as well as we do, which is so fucking wrong. Their brains were actually about 10% bigger than ours. So if there's a correlation between the size of the brain and the uh, complexity of the thought, then maybe they're smarter than us. Wolves are smarter than domesticated dogs. They process information, more information, more rapidly than a dog does. We're dogs. Hunter-gatherers are wolves. So there's no reason to believe that we're smarter than they were. Um, Yeah, so that last point, whatever their ideas were, these people in the past, they were ideas reasonable people could believe. All right, back to the essay. So here's another source of interesting heresies. Differentiate present ideas against those of various past cultures and see what you get. Some will be shocking by present standards. Okay, fine. But which might also be true? You don't have to look into the past to find big differences. In our own time, different societies have wildly varying ideas of what's okay and what isn't. So you can try differentiating other cultures' ideas against ours as well. The best way to do that is to visit them. Any idea that's considered harmless in a significant percentage of times and places, and yet is taboo in ours, is a candidate for something we're mistaken about. For example, at the high watermark of political correctness in the early 1990s, Harvard distributed to its faculty a staff brochure saying, among other things, that it was inappropriate to compliment a colleague or student's clothes. No more nice shirt. I think this principle is rare among the world's cultures, past or present. There are probably more where it's considered especially polite to compliment someone's clothing than where it's considered improper. Odds are this is, in a mild form, an example of one of the taboos a visitor from the future would have to be careful to avoid if he happened to set his time machine for Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1992. I think this is a a big area where we are in a frenzy of idiocy that it's considered a microaggression to tell someone you like their shirt or that they look good today. I think it's 
unconscionable that teachers or therapists working with children are legally prohibited from touching them. That's absurd. A crying child needs to be touched. That's what they're asking for. And to make that illegal because of the remote possibility that someone would touch the child inappropriately is the wrong way to think. It reminds me of when a friend of mine was telling me that uh, when she was in high school one day, a kid walked across the football field during a thunderstorm um, with an umbrella and got struck by lightning. And uh, so the school outlawed umbrellas. (laughs) All right, next section. Prigs. Of course, if they have time machines in the future, they'll probably have a separate reference manual just for Cambridge. This has always been a fussy place, a town of I daughters and T crossers, where you're liable to get both your grammar and your ideas corrected in the same conversation. And that suggests another way to find taboos. Look for prigs and see what's inside their heads. Those of you who don't know, prigs are like people who like being right about everything and correcting everyone. Kids' heads are repositories of all our taboos. It seems fitting to us that kids' ideas should be bright and clean. The picture we give them of the world is not merely simplified to suit their developing minds, but sanitized as well to suit our ideas of what kids ought to think. You can see this on a small scale in the matter of dirty words. A lot of my friends are starting to have children now, and they're all trying to to not use words like fuck and shit within the baby's hearing, lest the baby start using these words too. But these words are part of the language, and adults use them all the time. So parents are giving their kids an inaccurate idea of the language by not using them. Why do they do this? Because they don't think it's fitting that kids should use the whole language. We like children to seem innocent. This is always, Chris here, this has always confused me about my friends who are parents when they suddenly change the way they talk. And of course, it's a problem because I don't have kids and I don't change the way I talk for anyone. Uh, You know, if I'm on television, I'll try not to say fuck, but no guarantees, which probably explains why I'm not on television all that much anymore. But, um, you know, I talk the way I talk and I, I know that some people think it's inappropriate. I've received emails from people saying, I like your podcast, but you know, you really, uh, debase yourself by using, uh, you know, inappropriate language or whatever. And, um, (laughs) you know, I, I agree with Paul Graham. That's part of the language. It's the way people talk. It's the way I talk. Uh, and I, don't really see why I should change that. Um, And I also don't see why I should change it around kids because, you know, you can say to a kid like, Hey, there are things adults do that you can't do like drive cars, drink beer, drink coffee, smoke cigarettes, have sex. Um, 
you know, go to work, go to war. There are a lot of things that adults do that kids don't do. And so I don't understand why you can't say to the kid, you know, yeah, look, this is the way I talk with my friends and this is the way some adults talk. But you should not say words like shit and fuck in school because you'll get in trouble. Why, you know, why do we assume the kid can understand like you can't drink beer and I can but they can't understand there's certain words that I can use that you shouldn't. I don't get it. Anyway, um, back to the essay. Most adults, likewise, deliberately give kids a misleading view of the world. One of the most obvious examples is Santa Claus. We think it's cute for little kids to believe in Santa Claus. I myself think it's cute for little kids to believe in Santa Claus. But one wonders, do we tell them this stuff for their sake or for ours? I'm not arguing for or against this idea here. It's probably inevitable that parents should want to dress up their kids' minds in cute little baby outfits. I'll probably do it myself. The important thing for our purposes is that, as a result, a well-brought-up teenage kid's brain is a more or less complete collection of all our taboos and in mint condition because they're untainted by experience. Whatever we think that will later turn out to be ridiculous, it's almost certainly inside that teenager's head. How do we get at these ideas? By, following, by the following thought experiment. Imagine a kind of latter-day Conrad character. He's talking about the author Joseph Conrad, who has worked for a time as a mercenary in Africa, for a time as a doctor in Nepal, for a time as the manager of a nightclub in Miami. The specifics don't matter. Just someone who's seen a lot. Now imagine comparing what's inside this guy's head with what's inside the head of a well-behaved 16-year-old girl from the suburbs of America. What does he think that would shock her? He knows the world. She knows or at least embodies, present American taboos. Subtract one from the other, and the result is what we can't say. Next section is mechanism. <clears throat> I can think of one more way to figure out what we can't say. To look at how taboos are created. How do moral fashions arise, and why are they adopted? If we can understand this mechanism, we may be able to see it at work in our own time. Moral fashions don't seem to be created the way ordinary fashions are. Ordinary fashions seem to arise by accident when everyone imitates the whim of some influential person. The fashion for broad-toed shoes in late 15th century Europe began because Charles VIII of France had six toes on one foot. The fashion for the name Gary began when the actor Frank Cooper adopted the name of a tough mill town in Indiana. Gary, Indiana. Moral fashions more often seem to be created deliberately. When there's something we can't say, 
it's often because some group doesn't want us to. So he's saying moral fashions are an expression of power, whereas fashion fashion is normally an expression of some sort of historical whimsy or serendipity. The prohibition will be strongest when the group is nervous. The irony of Galileo's situation was that he got in trouble for repeating Copernicus's ideas. Copernicus himself didn't. In fact, Copernicus was a canon of a cathedral and dedicated his book to the Pope. But by Galileo's time, the church was in the throes of the Counter-Reformation and was much more worried about unorthodox ideas. To launch a taboo, a group has to be poised halfway between weakness and power. A confident group doesn't need taboos to protect it. It's not considered improper to make disparaging remarks about Americans or the English. And yet a group has to be powerful enough to enforce a taboo. Coprophiles, as of this writing, don't seem to be numerous or energetic enough to have had their interests promoted to a lifestyle. Coprophiles are people who love shit, I believe. I suspect the biggest source of moral taboos will turn out to be power struggles in which one side only barely has the upper hand. That's where you'll find a group powerful enough to enforce taboos, but weak enough to need them. Okay, this, this is very important here, this section. So he's saying to launch a taboo. So a taboo, he's saying, is like a weapon that's used to control the conversation and direct it away from ideas that are considered threatening to a particular group. And that group would be somewhere poised between weakness and power. Because he says if a powerful, powerful groups don't need to do this. They don't need to create taboos to push the conversation away from things because they're powerful. Um, so you have the group has to be strong enough to launch such a, uh, a weapon, but also weak enough to need it. All right, back to the essay. Most struggles, whatever they're really about, will be cast as struggles between competing ideas. The English, Reforma the English Reformation was at bottom a struggle for wealth and power. But it ended up being cast as a struggle to preserve the souls of Englishmen from the corrupting influence of Rome. It's easier to get people to fight for an idea, and whichever side wins, their ideas will also be considered to have triumphed, as if God wanted to signal his agreement by selecting that side as the victor. This is Chris here. Think about history. That's done over and over and over again. These things, these struggles for resources and political power and trade routes, which is really what wars are about, um, are sold to people as struggles between ideas. Oh, no, we're fighting for freedom. We're bringing freedom to the people of Cambodia. Not we're bombing the shit out of that country because the North Vietnamese are migrating their troops through Cambodia and 
bringing weapons in through the, no, no, it's not about strategy. It's about freedom. We're bringing freedom. We're defending the people of Chile against their, you know, communist duly elected president Pinochet. It's over and over again. It's sold as ideas, but that's not what's really going on. Okay, back to the essay. We often like to think of World War II as a triumph of freedom over totalitarianism. Perfect example, right? But we conveniently forget that the Soviet Union was also one of the winners. I'm not saying that struggles are never about ideas, just that they will always be made to seem to be about ideas, whether they are or not. And just as there is nothing so unfashionable as the last discarded fashion, there's nothing so wrong as the principles of the most recently defeated opponent. Although moral fashions tend to arise from different sources than fashions and clothing, the mechanism of their adoption seems much the same. The early adopters will be driven by ambition self-consciously cool people who want to distinguish themselves from the common herd. As the fashion becomes established, they'll be joined by a second, much larger group driven by fear. This second group adopt the fashion, not because they want to stand out, but because they're afraid of standing out. So, if you want to figure out what we can't say, look at the machinery of fashion and try to predict what it would make unsayable. What groups are powerful but nervous? And what ideas would they like to suppress? What ideas were tarnished by association when they ended up on the losing side of a recent struggle? If a self-consciously cool person wanted to differentiate himself from preceding fashions, for example, from his parents, which of their ideas would he tend to reject? What are conventional-minded people afraid of saying? That's the core of it right there. What are conventional-minded people afraid of saying? This technique won't find us all the things we can't say. I can think of some that aren't the result of any recent struggle. Many of our taboos are rooted deep in the past, but this approach, combined with the preceding four, will turn up a good number of unthinkable ideas. So Graham is giving us these tools to find the things that we can't say. Different tools, different ways of sort of panning for gold and the gold the nuggets are the things we can't say because those are the things that are probably true and i'm telling you if you this is how i got sex at dawn this is how i became new york times best-selling author that you've heard of that i got on rogan show and you heard me there and you ended up here and now i'm doing this i'm sitting in this room talking to you this all happened because sometime in 1990, I started thinking about something and realized that people were afraid to really look at the evidence that showed that Homo sapiens is not a monogamous species. 
And the only reason that book hadn't been written years and years before is that people were afraid to say it. I think people knew. Not most people, but people who study primates, people who study human sexuality, people who really understood the anthropology. I'm not the only person who ever looked at that data. And there are several people, I won't name them, but there are several famous scientists, authors who, when I presented this book, either they read the book or I, I corresponded with them directly. I had a very strong sense that their feeling was, I was wondering when someone was going to write this book that they had seen this years before I got around to it. But for personal reasons, they couldn't make this argument. It would destroy their career, maybe. Maybe it would mess up their marriage. Maybe they just didn't want to deal with the blowback. But the data were there. The information about bonobos, about hunter-gatherer groups, about the shape of the you know, the design of the human body, the external testicles, all the stuff that we presented in Sex at Dawn, it was all there. It was all just waiting to be put together. And I think the only reason that opportunity existed is that people were afraid to say that out loud. So next section, why? Some would ask, why would anyone want to do this? Why deliberately go around poking among nasty, disreputable ideas. Why look under rocks? I do it, first of all, for the same reason I did look under rocks as a kid, just plain curiosity. And I'm especially curious about anything that's forbidden. Let me see and decide for myself. Second, I do it because I don't like the idea of being mistaken. If like other eras, we believe things that will later seem ridiculous, I want to know what they are so that I, at least, can avoid believing them. Third, I do it because it's good for the brain. To do good work, you need a brain that can go anywhere. And you especially need a brain that's in the habit of going where it's not supposed to. Great work tends to grow out of ideas that others have overlooked, and no idea is so overlooked as one that's unthinkable. Natural selection, for example. It's so simple. Why didn't anyone think of it before? Well, that's all too obvious. Darwin himself was careful to tiptoe around the implications of his theory. He wanted to spend his time thinking about biology, not arguing with people who accused him of being an atheist. In the sciences, especially, it's a great advantage to be able to question assumptions. The MO of scientists, or at least the good ones, is precisely that. Look for places where conventional wisdom is broken and then try to pry apart the cracks and see what's underneath. That's where new theories come from. A good scientist, in other words, does not merely ignore conventional wisdom, but makes a special effort to break it. Scientists go looking for trouble. This should be the MO of any scholar, but scientists seem much more willing to look under rocks. Why? It could be that the scientists are simply smarter, 
Most physicists could, if necessary, make it through a PhD program in French literature, but few professors of French literature could make it through a PhD program in physics. Or it could be because it's clearer in the sciences whether theories are true or false, and this makes scientists bolder. Or it could be that because it's clearer in the sciences whether theories are true or false, you have to be smart to get good jobs as a scientist rather than just a good politician. But whatever the reason, there seems a clear correlation between intelligence and willingness to consider shocking ideas. This isn't just because smart people actively work to find holes in conventional thinking. I think conventions also have less hold over them to start with. You can see that in the way they dress. Okay, this is Chris here. <clears throat> I just want to, um, I want to, I don't, I'm not sure I'm disagreeing, but I'd like to put more nuance on this point. Graham says there's a clear, there seems to be a clear correlation between intelligence and willingness to consider shocking ideas. I don't know that that's true. I think some of the most conventional people I've ever met are very high IQ people. In fact, um, you know, there aren't a lot of rebels who make it through medical school. Um, there aren't a lot of rebels who make it through uh, lots of higher education where you're often compelled to agree with your mentors, your advisors. Um, I think his sense of the sort of rebelliousness of science may be true in the hard sciences or truer. Um, but I think that in, um, in medicine, for example, um, in the law, uh, I don't think you're really encouraged to be very subversive and question the premise uh, the way he is celebrating here. I think, in fact, that questioning the premise is a form of intelligence um, that a lot of very smart people are missing. I think a lot of very smart people get good grades when they're kids. They get rewarded for doing what they're supposed to do. And that innate intelligence they have is drained of its rebelliousness by convincing them that they're good kids and they're good thinkers and they're good scholars and they're doing good work and they're going to go to Harvard and they're going to get a job in the State Department and blah, 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 blah. And so any sort of impulse toward rebellion or fucking shit up is drained right out of them as part of the educational process. I think, for example, as I suggested earlier with Sex at Dawn, I don't think I'm particularly intelligent in terms of IQ. I think my strength is that I'm willing to look at things from a different perspective and to say it out loud, which is why this essay is important to me. I think that that is a form of intelligence um, that is overlooked and undervalued, but is extremely important. And, you know, 
if you and it can make up for a lot maybe you don't work as hard maybe you you just don't have the same kind of mental you know super high iq capacity but if you're willing to take a chance and if you're willing to look at things from a different angle you can end up in a very good place okay back to the essay Graham says, it's not only in the sciences that heresy pays off. In any competitive field, you can win big by seeing things that others daren't, dare not. And in every field, there are probably heresies few dare utter. Within the U.S. car industry, there's a lot of hand-wringing now about declining market share. Yet the cause is so obvious that any observant outsider could explain it in a second. They make bad cars. And they have for so long that by now the U.S. car brands are anti-brands, something you'd buy a car despite, not because of. Cadillac stopped being the Cadillac of cars in about 1970. And yet I suspect no one dares say this. Otherwise, these companies would have tried to fix the problem. Training yourself to think unthinkable thoughts has advantages beyond the thoughts themselves. It's like stretching. When you stretch before running, you put your body into positions much more extreme than any it will assume during the run. If you can think things so outside the box that they'd make people's hair stand on end, you'll have no trouble with the small trips outside the box that people call innovative, 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 I think. Yeah. Um, Okay, next section is uh titled it's got an italian title it says pensieri stretti when you find something you can't say what do you do with it my advice is don't say it or at least pick your battles suppose in the future there's a movement to ban the color yellow proposals to paint anything yellow are denounced as yellowist as is anyone suspected of liking the color people who like orange are tolerated but viewed with suspicion suppose you realize there's nothing wrong with yellow if you go around saying this you'll be denounced as a yellowist too and you'll find yourself having a lot of arguments with anti-yellowists If your aim in life is to rehabilitate the color yellow, that may be what you want. But if you're mostly interested in other questions, being labeled as a yellowist will just be a distraction. Argue with idiots and you become an idiot. The most important thing is to be able to think what you want, not to be able to say what you want. And if you feel you have to say everything you think, it may inhibit you from thinking improper thoughts. I think it's better to follow the opposite policy. Draw a sharp line between your thoughts and your speech. Inside your head, anything is allowed. Within my head, I make a point of encouraging the most outrageous thoughts I can imagine. But, as in secret society, nothing that happens within the building should be told to outsiders. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Okay, footnote here. Uh, I think this is not only an important consideration in terms of the sort of cognitive um, issues that Graham's talking about. I think this is a very important consideration in mental health. Um, I think that a lot of people suffer from 
the idea that what happens in your head is something that you should be accountable for and um, that you that we don't have this clear line between our thoughts and our speech or between our thoughts and our behavior. And so I think people feel like if I'm thinking it, then I'm halfway to doing it. And this causes um, huge amounts of shame and guilt that is counterproductive. Um, I, I've always done this, what Graham is outlining here, allow myself to think anything, anything, anything. Because when you try to stop yourself from thinking it, you give it power. Don't think of a pink elephant. You just did. Ah, you're bad. You're, you sinned, right? Uh, don't think about masturbating. Oh, you just thought about it. Now you've sinned. It's an old trick. And I think that one of the worst abuses of religions is, some religions anyway, is that they say God can see what you're thinking. God knows what you're thinking. God knows what you're dreaming. God is so fucking bored and has nothing better to do that he's up in your head looking at every little thing that you think. And he knows when you thought something really nasty. And so now you have to feel bad about that. And if you're Catholic, you have to go to the church and tell the priest. So now a human knows before just God knew, but now a human knows and it can be used against you. And it sort of crystallizes your shame and brings it into your life and keeps you malleable and easily manipulated. No. I don't buy that bullshit. I've always felt that what happens in my mind is my business and no one else's. And allowing thoughts to run around freely and do whatever they want actually lessens the um, power of any sort of dangerous or subversive thoughts. Anyway, that's my... Uh, take on it. Okay, back to the essay. When Milton was going to visit Italy in the 1630s, Sir Henry, Sir Henry Wooten, who had been ambassador to Venice, told him his motto should be, i pensieri stretti, il viso sciolto. Sorry if you're Italian and I screwed that up. Uh, that translates to closed thoughts and an open face. Smile at everyone, but don't tell them what you're thinking. This was wise advice. Milton was an argumentative fellow, and the Inquisition was a bit restive at the time. But I think the difference between Milton's situation and ours is only a matter of degree. Every era has its heresies, and if you don't get imprisoned for them, you will at least get in enough trouble that it becomes a complete distraction. I admit it seems cowardly to keep quiet, when I read about the harassment to which the Scientologists subject their critics or that pro-Israel groups are compiling dossiers on people who speak out against Israeli human rights abuses or about people being sued for violating the DMCA, not sure what that is, part of me wants to say, all right, you bastards, bring it on. The problem is there are only so many things you can't say. 
Oh, sorry, I fucked that up. The problem is there are so many things you can't say. If you said them all, you'd have no time left for your real work. You'd have to turn into Noam Chomsky. The trouble with keeping your thoughts, your thoughts secret, though, is that you lose the advantages of discussion. Talking about an idea leads to more ideas. So the optimal plan, if you can manage it, is to have a few trusted friends you can speak openly to. Or have a podcast with a wonderful audience like you. Uh, this is not just a way to develop ideas. It's also a good rule of thumb for choosing friends. The people you can say heretical things to without getting jumped on are also the most interesting to know. So true. So true. I think one of the worst or at least most sort of annoying things about social media is the people who scold me. People who, not you, obviously, because you're listening to this, but the people who maybe listen to one podcast or have listened to a few but don't really know who I am or see something that I post on Instagram, you know, like some fucking most recent one was uh, I posted some yak meat that I bought just down the road here. There's a yak farm, totally grass fed, no antibiotics, 100% free range. I see them out there. They're happy yaks. And I posted this yak meat that I was about to um, barbecue and somebody, you know, just gave me a bunch of shit for being a, a murderer. Um, and, you know, if you're in any sort of public situation these days, you get that all the time, all the scolding and, the, oh, I think that was inappropriate. That's my least favorite word, inappropriate. Um, and I definitely agree that the people I want to be with are, and this is why I love comedians so much, they're the unoffendable. They're, they're the people who... And what I said earlier about allowing any idea free range in your mind, this is a very important principle for comedians because that's where comedy comes from, right? The original idea might not be that funny, but you keep going and going and going and going. And that's where it starts to get funny, where you let it spin and spin and spin until it picks up so much centrifugal force that it it starts to warp and become something else. Um, I've had this kind of conversation with comedians repeatedly where they all say that, like, yeah, that's the thing. And that's why they don't hang out with normal people very much because normal people do get offended. Normal people do have uh, boundaries on what they're willing to discuss or to have discussed in their presence. Good comics, there are no boundaries. You say anything you want anything as long as you know i'm not saying it's about being mean or, or hurting people that's not funny but some bizarre weird idea i mean if you've ever seen a movie called uh what was it called it was it was produced by penn teller um the the aristocrats yeah. If you've ever seen The Aristocrats, you know what I'm talking about. That whole movie is about being as offensive as possible in pursuit of comedy. Okay, so next section. 
also in Italian, viso sciolto. I don't think we need the viso sciolto so much as the pensieri stretti. Uh, I think the viso sciolto is the open face and the pensieri stretti is the, um, the quiet, like the, the mind, so you don't say what's in your head. So I think what he's saying here is I don't think we need the... Uh, the big smile as much as we need to keep our thoughts to ourselves. Perhaps the best policy is to make it plain that you don't agree with whatever zealotry is current in your time, but not to be too specific about what you disagree with. Zealots will try to draw you out, but you don't have to answer them. If they try to force you to treat a question on their terms by asking, are you with us or against us? You can always just answer neither. This has happened to me recently, as Chris again, um, and I'll talk about this in Aroma when I get around to it, uh, around this movie, Planet of the Humans. I sort of found myself in the middle of um, some zealotry going on, and I was literally accused of siding with the evil side. <sighs> Crazy. Um Okay, back to the essay. Better still, answer, I haven't decided. That's what Larry Summers did when a group tried to put him in this position. Explaining himself later, he said, I don't do litmus tests. A lot of the questions people get hot about are actually quite complicated. There is no prize for getting the answer quickly. If the anti-yellowists seem to be getting out of hand and you want to fight back, there are ways to do it without getting yourself accused of being a yellowist. Like skirmishers in, ancient, in an ancient army, you want to avoid directly engaging the main body of the enemy's troops. Better to harass them with arrows from a distance. One way to do this is to ratchet the debate, the debate up one level of abstraction. If you argue against censorship in general, you can avoid being accused of whatever heresy is contained in the book or film that someone is trying to censor. You can attack labels with meta-labels, labels that refer to the use of labels to prevent discussion. The spread of the term political correctness meant the beginning of the end of political correctness because it enabled one to attack the phenomenon as a whole without being accused of any of the specific heresies it sought to suppress. Interesting point. So by naming it, political correctness, you sort of defang it because now you can argue against political correctness without engaging in discussions of sexism or racism or whatever else is included under that heading. Another way to counterattack is with metaphor. Arthur Miller undermined the House Un-American Activities Committee by writing a play, The Crucible, about the Salem witch trials. He never referred directly to the committee and so gave them no way to reply. What could the House Un-American Committee do? Defend the Salem witch trials? And yet Miller's metaphor stuck so well that to this day the activities of the committee are often described as a witch hunt. Best of all, probably, is humor. Zealots, whatever their cause, invariably lack a sense of humor. They can't reply in kind to jokes. They're as unhappy on the territory of humor as a mounted knight on a skating rink. 
Victorian prudishness, for example, seems to have been defeated mainly by treating it as a joke. Likewise, its reincarnation as political correctness. I am glad that I managed to write The Crucible, Arthur Miller wrote. But looking back, I've often wished I'd had the temperament to do an absurd comedy, which is what the situation deserved. ABQ is the next section. A Dutch friend says I should use Holland as an example of a tolerant society. It's true they have a long tradition of comparative open-mindedness. For centuries, the low countries were the place to go to say things you couldn't say anywhere else. And this happened to make the region a center of scholarship and industry, which have been closely tied for longer than most people realize. Descartes, though claimed by the French, did much of his thinking in Holland. And yet, I wonder. The Dutch seem to live their lives up to their necks in rules and regulations. There's so much you can't do there. Is there really nothing you can't say? Certainly the fact that they value open-mindedness is no guarantee. Who thinks they're not open-minded? Our hypothetical prim miss from the suburbs thinks she's open-minded. Hasn't she been taught to be? Ask anyone and they'll say the same thing. They're pretty open-minded, though they draw the line at things that are really wrong. Some tribes may avoid wrong as judgmental and may instead use a more neutral-sounding euphemism like negative or destructive. When people are bad at math, they know it because they get the wrong answers on tests. But when people are bad at open-mindedness, they don't know it. In fact, they tend to think the opposite. Remember, it's the nature of fashion to be invisible. It wouldn't work otherwise. Fashion doesn't seem like fashion to someone in the grip of it. It just seems like the right thing to do. It's only by looking from a distance that we see oscillations in people's idea of the right thing to do and can identify them as fashions. Time gives us such distance for free. Indeed, the arrival of new fashions makes old fashions easy to see because they seem so ridiculous by contrast. From the end of a pendulum swing, the other end seems especially far away. To see fashion in our own time, though, requires a conscious effort. Without time to give you distance, you have to create distance yourself. Instead of being part of the mob, stand as far away from it as you can and watch what it's doing, and pay especially close attention whenever an idea is being suppressed. This, this is Chris here. This is what I'm talking about when I talk about detribalization and the importance of travel and the importance of imagination. Even if you can't travel physically, you don't have the money, your body won't do it, whatever, the lockdown is happening. You can travel in, in novels, you can travel in film. Um, people, some people use psychedelics to travel. Um, anything that puts a distance between where you are right now and your normal, habitual, shared reality will give you this kind of perspective that Graham's talking about here. Back to the essay. Web filters for children and employees often ban sites containing pornography, violence, and hate speech. What counts as pornography and violence? And what exactly is hate speech? This sounds like a phrase out of 1984. Labels like that are probably the biggest external clue. If a statement is false, that's the worst thing you can say about it. You don't need to say it's heretical. 
And if it isn't false, it shouldn't be suppressed. So when you see statements being attacked as Xist or Yic, substitute your current value, whether in 1630 or 2030, that's a sure sign that something's wrong. When you hear these labels being used, ask yourself why. Especially if you hear yourself using them. It's not just the mob you need to you need to learn to watch from a distance. You need to be able to watch your own thoughts from a distance. That's not a radical idea, by the way. It's the main difference between children and adults. When a child gets angry because he's tired, he doesn't know what's happening. An adult can distance himself enough from the situation to say, never mind, I'm just tired. I don't see why one couldn't, by a similar process, learn to recognize and discount the effects of moral fashions. You have to take that extra step if you want to think clearly. But it's harder, because now you're working against social customs instead of with them. Everyone encourages you to grow up to the point where you can discount your own bad moods. Few encourage you to continue to the point where you can discount society's bad moods. How can you see the wave when you're the water? Always be questioning. That's the only defense. What can't you say and why? All right. That's What You Can't Say by Paul Graham. You can follow him on Twitter. Um, and uh, he's got a website with dozens, scores of essays that he's written over the years. Uh, I've read a few of them. They're all very good. A lot of them are about, you know, startup, Silicon Valley, investing, shit like that. Um, but some of them are more sort of broadly philosophical like this one. I hope you enjoy this. I hope you'll get the essay and look closely at it, read it for yourself. And I hope that uh, you'll be encouraged to either keep or start questioning, why can't you say that? What is it that you can't say? And why doesn't society want that said out loud? All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your attention. Uh, I will be back with you as soon as my voice gets a little less ragged and I've got, I'm in the right mood, which should be within the next couple of days. Bye. You're supposed to sit on your ass and nod at stupid things. Man, it's hard to do. But if you Things I shouldn't like And sometimes I say things I shouldn't 
like 